Hi, listeners. This is Catherine Gorman. And before we start the show today, we just wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about our Kickstarter, which is still ongoing. Um, we've got a, a couple of weeks left, but we really need your support. We're falling a little bit behind in our goals. And if we're going to make a season two, we, we need your help on this. Our major expense for Talking Machines is bringing you these really amazing interviews that we've been able to get. You know, Jeff Hinton, Yan McCoon, we talked to Andrew Ng. And the way that we're able to get those and get such high-profile guests is we go to where they are. Last year, we went to NIPS and did a one bunch of really wonderful interviews there. And so the money that you donate to our Kickstarter is going to cover our travel expenses and also our conference costs. Exactly. And, uh, you know, going to NIPS this December, and we'd like to get mm -hmm. out to the West Coast uh, and, and actually try to reach, reach out to some different communities than we've talked to in this first season. Right. Really expand our horizons so that we can keep bringing you new insights about machine learning and what's happening in the field. So um, just to give you an idea of, of what we're actually going to be using using the money for, and also for studio time, because we want our podcast to be as, as listenable as possible and finding good recording space, you know, costs money and having engineering and, and having the editing, all those people, we have to pay them. So, and if you don't want season two to be Ryan and I sitting on a couch drinking beers, then it would be really great if you could, if you could lend us a hand and donate to our project so that we can continue making great radio about machine learning for you. So please donate to our Kickstarter. It's Totepag Productions, Talking Machines on Kickstarter, and you can find a link to it on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And Ryan, today you're going to teach us about autoencoders. Yeah, you know, autoencoder neural networks are this really cool idea about doing unsupervised learning with neural networks. So neural networks, I think, are, have been most successful in supervised learning problems where, you know, you take images or text or something and you try to map it to some uh, relatively small set of, of labels. So things like ImageNet are really, um, you know, are most often one these days using convolutional neural networks. Mm -hmm. Autoencoder neural networks are this really interesting idea for doing unsupervised learning with neural networks. Some of the, the interesting early work on autoencoders was done by like Richard Zemmel at the University of Toronto. Um, and then they sort of interest in them kind of faded away a little bit you know, along with the rest of the neural networks kind of in the, in the late 90s. Um, and then it came back as a way to do unsupervised pre-training for neural networks. And then that went out of vogue um, and then now they're kind of back as people have been thinking about the sort of interesting relationships between autoencoders and like variational inference and graphical models. So the idea of, a, uh, of an autoencoder is to learn a compression of data. And it does it in this kind of really interesting way, which is that rather than taking the input that say an image and then producing a label of whether or not it's a dog or a cat or something like that, it instead is learning to reproduce the image. So you can imagine um, that you know, it takes an image as an input and its output is a big collection of all the pixels in the image and it's trying to produce those pixels at the output or whatever the data are. It's basically trying to reproduce its input at its output. Now that doesn't sound like a very hard problem because all it's doing is learning the identity transformation from input to output and like, you know, obviously it has the input already. How, how could, it's not, all it needs to do is not forget it on the way to the output. The interesting thing is to introduce a bottleneck in the representation. To start with, you know, 
10,000 dimensional data and somewhere in this neural network try to go through a hidden layer that's only like 100 dimensions wide or 1,000 mm. dimensions wide or some, some dimensionality that's a lot lower than the, than the input and then still try to reproduce the 10,000 dimensional output. And the idea then is that that will be successful whenever it's sort of storing as much of the important sort of what I think of as like statistically salient information in that in that coding layer, we call it. So you have an encoder that goes from the input of the neural net, you know, the actual kind of raw features of the data to this code. And then you have a decoder, which goes from that code back to the input. And so then the idea is you take something that's high dimensional and you compress it into low dimensions in such a way that you can still recover, you know, recover it at the output. The so that means parts. exactly. So that means we need like a loss function. So, you know, maybe it'll be L2 or something like that, squared, you know, a squared error. And then there's like a whole lot of variance of these. So I, I think this is a really cool, fun thing because it because it's learning a compression. You know, compression sort of lives at all of the devices and communications that we use all the time. Uh, this podcast is compressed as it's streamed to your iPhone or whatever, um, and your television signal, and basically all the digital communications that you that you interact with have some level of compression. And so, good compression is important to the world. And um, but most of the time, most compression algorithms are sort of bespoke. They're designed by engineers who have a very deep understanding of the signals involved. Um, but we tend not to learn the compression from the data, and yet that feels like a very natural thing to do. It just turns out to be hard. Autoencoders are one way to learn a compression, um, and I, I think are kind of very. It's a very interesting thing because essentially what you're doing is trying to say that the you know how can I use this low dimensional space to represent as much of the important aspects of the data as possible. The uh, and it has deep connections to to other areas. There's uh, so it turns out that if you have an autoencoder neural network and it um, uh, and it's linear, so it doesn't have any nonlinearities in the in the uh, network then it will learn a representation that's ex essentially equivalent to principal components analysis, that you can view PCA as a, a particular kind of an autoencoder neural network with linear, uh, with linear transformations. Um, that is under, under sort of L2, L2, L2 reconstruction loss. And this kind of reconstruction view can inform a lot of other things as well, from sort of sparse coding to restricted Boltzmann machines and a lot of other kind of ideas. They're all sort of have this very nice idea where you have a map that goes from uh, you have a map that goes from from sort of input to codes and then codes back to um, back to the the sort of the input. So they're kind of a really cool idea for unsupervised learning. And then they often sort of give cool representations that can be great initializations for larger supervised neural networks. And then more recently, what people have been doing is thinking about them, uh, thinking about what are called variational autoencoders. And this is kind of a really uh, sort of fun thing. I th I associate it with uh, with some recent work by uh, Kingma and, and Welling. The idea is basically to observe that when we want to perform inference in a big graphical model, so graphical models, you know, kind of at first glance don't seem to have a lot to do with, um, with neural networks except that we tend to draw them with circles and arrows. When we write down a big directed graphical model, then one of the big challenges we face is trying to perform inference in this graphical model. And the idea is that there's some set of hidden random variables that are informing the actual observed random variables that we see and the graphical model specifies a, a joint distribution over the unobserved and the observed data and sort of couples, so it couples those together and then we perform inference by conditioning on the observed data and trying to reason about the posture distribution that we get over the unobserved stuff. That's often very hard. 
Um, things like Markov chain Monte Carlo were about reasoning, you know, about sampling from that posterior distribution. And then things like variational inference are about approximating that, that distribution with some simpler family of distributions. So a variational autoencoder is this really cool idea where you try to use a neural network to go from the observed data to an estimate of what the um, of what those hidden variables are. So you use a neural network to produce the approximating distribution for your variational approximation, such that it tends to um, sort of uh, do the sort of do the right inference that you would like to do in your graphical model. So this is a really cool idea because it makes inference potentially faster and easier in complicated graphical models. But it also then connects to these other ideas from, uh, from neural networks and autoencoders where now what you have essentially is a kind of an inference network that has the role, the functional role, of an encoder. And then the graphical model is kind of the, the decoder that you're sort of specifying a priori based on, on your beliefs about the world. Now, maybe that's something very general, like a sigmoid belief network or something, or, or maybe it's uh, some interesting uh, graphical model informed by the physics of some problem you want to solve or, or, or something like that. So like a lot of scientific ideas, it kind of goes through phases of, of attracting a lot of attention and not. And right at this moment, autoencoders, I think, are, are particularly interesting due to this work by Maxwell and other, and other folks. So you can find more information about that on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Today's listener question is about the rise of strong AI. Hi, my name is Chris Carl. My question for the Talking Machines is, what are some of the challenges holding us back from waking up as strong AI? And how do you see research leading us down the path of creating an artificial superintelligence? So, you know, trying to understand what's holding us back from, from building a superintelligence is kind of like asking, you know, what's holding us back from exploring the universe uh, with, like, warp drives. And this is because in both cases, we have a vague notion of the scope of the problem, mm -hmm. and we know it's super hard, but we actually don't even really know what we don't know. So I, I liken this kind of science to hiking up a mountain. We've all had the experience where you sort of see a ridge and you hike towards the ridge and you kind of imagine in your head that that ridge, once you get over that, then you'll be at the top of the mountain. And of course, what always happens is you, you come over the ridge and there's another ridge. And maybe that one's probably the top of the mountain. And I, I think a tremendous amount of science kind of has this flavor where it's, it's a lot easier to see, um, to see the next ridge and to gauge how far you are from that ridge. And this is the immediate challenge. And we are always sort of optimistic that that ridge is the last one. Um, but most of the time what happens is we get to the top of the ridge and realize that there's a lot farther to go and we actually don't even know how far we are from the top of the mountain. And research into computational intelligence is definitely of that flavor. This is why you see, I think, a lot of, a lot of pessimism from authentic experts in this area is because they just, they've, they've come over many ridges and they know there are many ridges to go and they know how hard the problem is. And then there are kind of people on the periphery who are very smart but who maybe don't um, have quite the sort of hands-on appreciation of just how little we know about this, about this problem. And, and this has come up in many of our interviews before. And then there's a the question of kind of super intelligence versus not. I think there's, there's it's really tough to even talk about intelligence, I think. Um, on one hand, part of the kind of study of intelligence is about studying 
human intelligence about or about studying mammalian intelligence how do we understand brains and these are the kind of the only examples of intelligent things that we have and we'd like to you know understand the phenomenon of human intelligence well and this is what neuroscience is about um of course and uh, and a lot of machine learning and ai is informed by that and tries to uh, build things that look biological because the biological systems seem to be the only ones that have so far succeeded Nevertheless, I think one of the huge challenges of building machine intelligence is thinking more broadly about, um, about what it means to be intelligent. I think we have an incredibly anthropocentric view on intelligence, um, and this has informed the history of AI. Uh, 60 years ago, you know, the definition of something that was intelligent was approximately like, what do smart white men do? Well, they play chess, right? And, um, and so therefore something that can solve chess well must be intelligent. Well, I think we've come to appreciate that that um, is what we would kind of call weak AI and not strong AI. And it can be solved by having a lot of, you know, a very sort of fast search. Um, and, and there's a long history of this, of this, kind of, uh, this kind of thing where if we solve this problem, that'll probably be strong AI. Oops, it turns out it's weak AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, that's, and that just really speaks to how little we understand the problem. That when, as soon as we sort of try to pin down a, a testable definition or sort of a, uh, an empirical challenge that is solved well seems to indicate that we have something intelligent, then something intelligent, then as soon as we solve it, then it sort of doesn't feel intelligent anymore. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, this is kind of a curse that's plagued AI for a long time, um, which is that, that um, something that is sort of ma- machine intelligence must have some mysteriousness associated with it, otherwise it hasn't succeeded. Um, and the uh, and and so over time, uh, many problems that, like I said, you know, before we solved them, felt like they needed AI. Once they're solved, we don't call that AI anymore. I think one of the important things is that that as we that I, I think this kind of idea that we're going to sort of suddenly have one big sort of AI superintelligence. Um, for me, I, I don't think that's the way that this is going to that any of this is going to happen. I, I think the, my my feeling is that that artificial intelligence is going to just look like better and better tools mm. for people. Mm-hmm. That uh, that it'll be closer coupling between our brains and computers. It'll be uh, more ubiquity of intelligent devices, and they'll sort of do more of what we want them to do, and less of what we directly ask them to do, and have access to more information and more computation. And that this is a and that this is a, a gradual thing and not a sudden thing, um, that is already very very well underway. Consider the fact. I mean, consider the kind of problems that that you know a modern search engine like Google can can solve. I mean, it, it can give you access to a tremendous amount of information, and it can do some you know modest question answering and present structured data. It can do really a lot of things in response to. Um, in response to relatively sort of um, half-baked queries by you. And, um, and so that is already a pretty amazing level of, of AI uh, that we have, and you have it on your person right now. Millions of people in the developed world have access to this, um, to this information on their person 24 hours a day. And, um, and if you were to take a step back in time and you were to say to someone who is researching um, AI, in like, you know, I don't know, the mid-50s or something and say, in the future, you will be able to, uh, at any moment, 
of the day have access to all of the world's information by, sing, you know, by swiping your fingers and that you will uh, be able to answer any question essentially you wanted or perform unbelievable calculations instantaneously, um, even if you're you know, on a subway car or you know, uh, you know, kind of no matter where you are. And if you told someone in 1950 or whatever that, uh, you know, that that, that, that was going to be possible, they would just say, oh, my gosh, you, that, will be, that will be artificial intelligence. It will be done. If you explained in abstract terms what it means to hold an iPhone in your hands um, and interact with this device that, that does a huge range of, of things um, and, and has access to essentially the entire world's information, uh, I, I, people would would have a hard time distinguishing between that and 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 a super intelligence in a sense, and I, and I think that's a I think that basically that's a trend, right? That sort of you know it's a trend from sort of Babbage to the you know Apple IIe or whatever through iPhones and and on to the next thing, which is going to look you know it's, like I said it's going to be closer coupling. It's going to be easier to use these tools. They're going to do more for you with you asking them to, them to do less. And um, and that's I think just that's the shape of artificial intelligence. It's just better and better tools all the time. And and so and the lineage of the tools we have now can be traced back a very, very long time. So I, I think the idea that we're going to, you know, I mean, maybe there will suddenly be a, a super intelligence that that suddenly, you know, does a, a whole lot of things all at once. But I, I think it's more like it's just enabling people um, in, in something that is, is kind of like a symbiotic relationship. The, the way it currently is all the way back to stone tools um, I mean that's what that's kind of actually the definition in the sense of human intelligence is the building of tools so what are the barriers I don't know but we have a lot of problems right in front of us that we're working on about building building better and more intelligent tools and um, and when we get to the top of that ridge then we'll see what the next ridge is if you've got a question for Talking Machines email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS This week's guest on Talking Machines is Hugo La Rochelle. Um, he was with the Université de Sherbrooke, and now he's with uh, Twitter. When we sat down with Hugo at NIPS in Montreal in 2014, the first question we asked him is the first question we ask everyone. How did you get where you are? Sure. Um, so I guess I did my undergrad at uh, University of Montreal, um, and I had some vague sense that I wanted to do AI. It was pretty much the most of what I... The, the most precise idea of what I wanted to do. And so uh, at one point I met with uh, Joshua Benjo, who's teaching there, who's a professor there, and uh, asked him about opportunities for internships and something like that. And, uh, and so the second summer of my undergrad, I did an internship in his lab and it sort of started from there, started learning about artificial neural networks. Um, then I wanted to to graduate studies, I was, because I had really good grades, I was offered the opportunity of actually going directly to the PhD program, which I uh, decided to do. And so I did my uh, PhD with Yashua Benjo. Um, this is when the whole craze about deep learning sort of started, uh, right, you know, when it was time for me to really pick a subject for my uh, PhD. So it was a great time for me to do a PhD. So that was, that was great. Um, and then, I did a postdoc at uh, Jeffrey Hinton's lab. Um, 
I spent uh, about two years, a bit more than two years in Toronto. And then I found the uh, faculty job at the uh, University of Sherbrooke. Uh, and uh, that's where I am right now. Excellent. And so what are you looking at right now? What's the question that's m most exciting? Um, so I guess um, one thing that, that I find the most interesting is in general, so one topic that I like the most is unsupervised learning. That is the problem of uh, trying to extract some sort of meaningful representation out of data that is not necessarily labeled by humans. Uh, so, you know, the recent greatest results in deep learning have explored mostly large collections of labeled data. And my research agenda is to think, okay, well, that's going to work for certain problems that are in particular really important for the industry. Uh, but uh, for other problems where either it's, they're a bit more directed towards AI and maybe there's less industrial interest in them or, um, or for just problems where it's just hard to collect data, then I think I'm making the assumption that it's perhaps a bit naive to think we're going to collect huge amounts of data for each of these problems and make our way towards AI like that. Mm -hmm. So unsupervised learning is for me a way to try to see whether we can leverage and discover without you, you know, indirect human intervention into generating labeled data to make progress towards a bunch of problems in AI like computer vision, natural language processing, mm -hmm. and uh, these types of, uh, of problems. And uh, just generally speaking, uh, looking into how we can exploit varying sources of data to solve these problems and not rely on labeled data is something that's really uh, interesting for me. Like, like what? So what are the sources of, of just raw data that you could actually? Right. So, um, so let's see. Sometimes it's just, you know, in terms of collections of images, for instance, that are not necessarily labeled as to what are the objects that are present and so on. Mm -hmm. It's pretty easy to collect a lot of such data on the web, just people uploading photos, and uh, but it's not going to be necessarily labeled with exactly what are the objects in the image. Right. So how can you still exploit such data in order to uh, detect what are the objects in the image and so on? That's an example. Uh, and also from text data, if you want to uh, somehow sort of understand their meaning and maybe answer questions about uh, uh, about text or classified text. Um, so another example of application which uh, I've looked at recently is can we somehow, if we have labeled data, say for documents that are, say, in English, uh, but we sort of been categorized into different categories, is it talking about the economy or politics or religion? But uh, what you're really interested in is actually classifying documents that are in French. Well, can we somehow exploit the English documents that are labeled to be actually able to classify documents that are in French. Mm -hmm. And so this way we try to exploit other types of, and, and try to do this without having to explicitly translate the document. Right. Uh, and uh, so very recently we looked at exploiting other sources of data where you have matching pairs of English and French sentences that you can get from uh, transcriptions of the debates at uh, European Parliament, for instance, hmm. to try to do this sort of cross-domain or cross-language generalization. Hmm. Um, another project I'm looking at right now where we're starting to uh, get some results and it's part of a longer-term, I think, ambition is to, um, if you have problems, say, uh, like you want to classify reviews of uh, products, like books versus movies, 
imagine I have labeled uh, reviews of uh, books, but I don't. But I actually want to classify, and the classification would be like sentiment. This is a positive review or a negative review. Mm -hmm. But then maybe what I really want is to also generalize to reviews of movies. Hmm. Uh, so how can you learn a model from data that would not just identify the sentiment from uh, reviews of just books, but of products in general. And eventually, you can generalize this idea, I think, and that's something I'd like to, particularly excited to look at for the future, trying to exploit in this case, instead of having reviews of books versus reviews of movies, having, say, synthetic data, which could be generated for certain problems. For instance, you could get with computer graphics software, actually generate label data of, uh, of objects in different scenes or, or, or person and uh, leveraging that data to generalize to real images. Hmm. Uh, there are also uh, um, other types of, of problems where you have this sort of fairly good but not perfect synthetic generators of data and trying to use and leverage that data which could be generated in much larger uh, quantity but to generalize to real data is, is another instance of, of, of this sort of general agenda of exploiting data from, from varying sources to be able to generalize from data-rich, label data-rich problems to label data-poor problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Hugo, you're also um, helping to develop a new, a new conference in machine learning. Yes, yes. So, uh, so I guess this conference already exists. It's at, I am part of the program committee of iClear. International Conference on uh, Learning Representations. Uh, I'm involved with Nando de Freitas, uh, Semi Bengio, and Brian Kingsbury. The general chairs are Jan Lecker and, and uh, Joshua Bengio. Uh, it's a really interesting conference. It has this open reviewing approach where, uh, in addition to reviewers that are selected as in regular conferences and that provide anonymous reviews, the uh, people can actually openly comment on all the submitted papers. Uh, which uh, one benefit of that is that we can get people from outside the field to actually see papers and actually comment and sometimes even make very useful and valuable suggestions. This actually has happened in the past year where someone that was not in machine learning actually read out a paper, find some issues with it, but also like propose ways of, of, of fixing the paper and have some these kind of interactions that otherwise would be hard to get. Mm -hmm. um, so it's also open in the sense that people that submit are actually, uh, they have to put their papers online. So now everyone is seeing the submissions, they are on archive, and, uh, and then people get to uh, uh, see them and potentially comment and interact. Hmm. Uh, so uh, it's a, I'm really happy to be involved with the conference. It's a very unique, it's really an experiment still. We're still figuring certain things out. and and. Uh, trying to fix problems we see as we go. And um, so I really encourage people to, to check it out because I think, I don't know if there are other conferences that are like this. Uh, I, I would tempted to say that it's probably one where it has the largest scale for something like this. Um, and I think it's kind of exciting for us in machine learning to experiment and try to, to explore other ways of, of, of reviewing and, and essentially, you know, ways of, of accelerating the dissemination of, of, of content and research in, in machine learning. Now, when papers are reviewed for a conference, you're not supposed to know the name of the person who did who Yes, that's right. And paper. that's still preserved. Some reviews are assigned. Some reviewers are assigned to certain papers, uh, and they are kept anonymous. Hmm. But people can also openly comment on and essentially, you know, 
quote unquote review these papers and have an interaction with the authors. Hmm. Uh, and um, it's it, things are usually going well. You could you could uh, think that it could become a mess where people are sort of aggressively commenting on other people's research, but that doesn't really happen. It's, it seems like it's been mostly positive, really, the interaction that uh, uh, that we have. And it's 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 really interesting because it also puts this emphasis on, on, on encouraging people to put their research as they go on archive. And you see this now in machine learning a lot. You would, before other conferences, often you would see people, they would already have their drafts on archive. You probably, you might have heard about it even before going to the conference. And this is becoming a, an approach that more and more researchers are following in machine learning. Uh, it's great because you really see that the, it, uh, in particular in deep learning, you see a lot of people that, that uh, go about it this way. And it, you see that it progresses extremely quickly. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting to see within the span of a year to what extent like an archive paper could have influenced another archive paper later on instead of waiting for a full you know, year cycle of, right. of publication. It's, it's great for this. It makes the job very different. To some extent, it's great because you get to publish your work as early as you can. Some of the extent, it means any day someone could have had the same idea and you'll learn about it in an archive. So whereas before, it would be every once, you know, every time there was a, uh, uh, they would probably say which papers were accepted at a conference, then perhaps you would know. But now it's every day. So it's, yeah, it, there, it takes some getting used to. Uh, but I think globally, it's definitely better for the field. And I think we're starting to feel that it has... I think it has accelerated our progress. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it seems like it's radically shifted the just like the timescale on which you learn about what other people are doing. Yeah. How have you seen that influence the pace at which the entire field moves forward? Um, I, I'm not sure if I uh, I I want to say that yes, it's it's generalized to machine learning in, in general. I, I I can't say because I'm mostly aware of the work being published on. Uh, uh, in deep learning mostly, mm -hmm. uh, but but I would think so. And also another thing that contributes to this is is that now people share, you know, whenever there's an archive paper, people will share it on, on Google Plus, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and that's another way that you see a lot of the cool things that people are doing, you know, uh, in real time, really what's happening in, in, in the field. So it's, it's really exciting. And another another aspect to a, a field that shifts so quickly is just trying to teach that field. Uh -huh. And you have you have an open online course. Yeah. So how how do you approach teaching? And also, how do you approach teaching students a complicated subject that and you and you have a, a much more removed relationship mm -hmm. with those students than a regular professor might have? Yeah. So I decided to um, uh, try to develop courses that are in the format that I think I want to say as has perhaps been pioneered by Coursera. Uh, I was uh, actually looking at some of these courses in part as a professor to just get an idea of how certain topics were taught by others to get some ideas. And But I just really liked the format with, that they follow, which is essentially everything is taught through videos that are usually very short. Uh, and uh, so that essentially identify a bunch of units of, uh, of things that you can learn in a given discipline. And I wanted to... I, so I decided to develop this course in part because I wanted to use that in my own course, in my uh, course at the University of Shelburne. And so what I did, I did it for a few courses, including my graduate course. And for this one, I actually did videos that are in English. 
and um, and I followed what is known as a flip class model, where mm. the students would have every week to look at the, listen to the material, watch the material online, and then in class we would instead discuss, you know, the questions that they would have. I would put up a forum where they would need to ask questions every week, and um, and I've really enjoyed this particular way of, of teaching it's been it's been very fun to have this interaction with the students where instead of being the professor that is trying to make it sound all interesting during a class and trying to keep everyone awake and interested instead you become the person that is there to help them understand and, and do their homeworks and do their assignments and everything and it as a professor i found this to be much more stimulating and 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 uh, uh, I really enjoyed having this type of interaction with the students. And generally speaking, um, students tend to like it. it. It varies a lot. One thing that having experimented a little bit with, with this format is that you see that there are really different types of learners. Some people like the videos. For other people, that's not their preferred way of learning. But I found at the graduate level, it works really well. And, uh, and the other advantage of doing that is that I could actually provide material that was accessible by anyone, anywhere. And I, I'm getting more and more emails from different people asking me questions about the material and also thanking me for putting this up, which makes, again, the, uh, the job much more fun. And it, it, you're working for a bigger audience then. And as a professor, I find this uh, uh, really, really um, uh, a really rich experience and, and uh, I, I really like this approach and now I essentially for all my courses I'm trying to to do that now to flip them so that I have videos online and uh, and so far so good now when I and you've been using this sort of flip method for your graduate students yes so how do you feel that that changes the relationship that you have with your graduate graduate students because I usually think of this as graduate school as like a small cohort maybe 10 15 people mm -hmm. and you work intensely um, but how does how does that change things for your students and for you? Uh, so one thing that I've seen happen is that it would open much more. Uh, it would give much more time for us to talk research and actually interact as and get an idea of, of and also almost a simulation as as what it can be to just talk about potentially new ideas, different ways of doing this. You have much more time to actually do this. Mm. Um, and there's also this approach where you're always in a position where you're helping them uh, and and uh, this this has been really fun to be in that position uh, you see they uh, they learn better by doing by all always interacting with you in a practical way and um, and the fact is that you know often what I say is that there's an exponential number of ways of not understanding something <laughs> it's hard to cover them all in one class right. with one set of lectures right so having this interaction with them where I can, you know, almost have this surgical interaction with them where I fix their particular problem yeah. with the material it makes it, uh, I think uh, that's possibly why the students uh, appreciate it. Uh, and uh, it makes it much more personalized mm -hmm. in terms of, of teaching. Hugo Lovershow, really interesting work. Yeah, he does a lot, of, a lot of different things. I've really enjoyed working with him over the years. Um, and also, I have to say, you know, you should really follow him on Twitter. He, oh, yeah. He posts these, uh, these really interesting write-ups of different papers he's been reading using Evernote or something. And his, I think his handle is Hugo underscore La Rochelle. And we'll post that on our website. He's also got an amazing YouTube channel of some really great tutorials of yeah. machine learning basics. Definitely something to check out. Yeah. So that's it for us this week. 
On Talking Machines, I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode.